0: Welcome to the Dow of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Dow of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, I have Gigi with me. Gigi, thank you for being with us Before we get started, any announcements go to buddyc.org. Lots of good recovery resources there for you. Also, we're fixing to start our weekly Dow recovery meeting up again. It's going to be Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. I will post in the private Facebook group the link. If you want to look at that, go to our Facebook group. Everyone's invited to come and talk about how the Tao has enhanced their recovery. We'll start with the first verse of the Tao Te Ching. I decided I'm not going to look at any notes from our prior discussions so that we can talk about how our experience, strength, and hope applies today. So we're going back through all 81 verses, starting with the first verse in this first meeting. Um, So check buddyc.org out or the Tao of Our Understanding Facebook group. is a private group. You're welcome to join. Gigi, good to have you today, ma'am. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here, buddy. Gigi, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have going on in the recovery community? I know you've wrote a couple of books. You work with a lot of ladies in recovery. Tell us where you're at with all those projects.
1: I'm definitely immersed in the 12th step, (laughs) a lot in the 11th step because when you step out there and decide to go public with your writing and your thinking that can be a little daunting <laughs> so it's neat that our higher power nudges us to go in a direction that we hadn't thought of before i hadn't really thought of writing a book and then then we go what we get scared and then we get the courage and just the right resources come pitching into our lives. So, a book that I ran into was just like the book I wanted to write. And through the years, the first one came out in 2018. It took about four years to write it and get it all
0: ready. And then I bet you didn't realize how much work that was going to be. I bet you I thought it would happen just super quick, but man, it is a process.
1: Correct. And I, I had a contract for an education book in the middle of it which was wow. pretty labor intensive with, with my partner two other co-authors but it it slowed down the process and and then the latest one just came out in February but what I'm doing currently then is I I haven't created a Facebook page I do have Gigi Langer author and then I have Gigi Langer on Facebook. And right. So I post things once or twice a week, sometimes three. I do a weekly blog, and I have a bunch of subscribers on my website, which is gglanger.com. And what's Pretty the name simple. of your books? Okay. The first one is called 50 Ways to Worry Less Now, and it's about reject negative thinking to find peace, clarity, and connection. Ah. Uh. So that one I wanted to write because I realized the techniques that we were learning and the tools were so valuable for everyday life, life. And I had discovered a lot of things through therapy, through energy work, through not outside our typical tools in a recovery program. And I wanted to offer those to people in a form that would Give the story of where I was having trouble, how I discovered the technique, and then a little set of the research behind the technique, and then a little set of directions. If you want to do this, clearly I'm a former teacher.
0: (laughs) That's so valuable, especially to folks outside of recovery. It's valuable in recovery as well, but what has been the response from people that are not in the recovery community? I imagine it's been very positive.
1: It's... I know of one gentleman who was 12-stepped by it. He quit drinking after he read about my what my therapist suggested that I do, and I'll tell that in a minute with my story. But yeah, however, because I communicate mostly with the recovery community on all the social media things, I think most of the people who buy it are in the recovery community because And therapists, a lot of therapists buy it because instead of having to say, here's how you do Byron Katie's turnarounds or and then teach it to them in the therapy session, my book has an example approved by Byron Katie on exactly how to do that, is it true, is it true, and the turnarounds. So it's a resource for a lot of therapists.
0: That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it great to be used in that way? Yes, it is.
1: Yeah, it's been a fabulous experience. And I think the biggest part is connecting with so many other people in recovery. And not that many people actually write back and say, oh, this really helped me. I do have a little quiz, a worry quiz, self-assessment on my, my website. And so people have said, I started out at this level before I read the book, and now I'm lowered my worry quotient to this. <laughs> wow! So that's been fun to get.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna put in the notes to Gigi your webpage link so they can get to your webpage and get more information about you. So right. that's and we've connected. I, every steps on the path is how I look at this, and I think we started connecting when I got you to speak. For the fourth dimensioners meeting when it was began at the first of the pandemic. I think that was when we started communicating and we've got a, a good friendship from just everything that's gone on. It's amazing how things just line up.
1: It is because I had heard about that. You were doing online meetings at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I had been involved with Mark's podcast recovered cast Yes. before that. Yes, before that, when I was still in Michigan. Then we started seeing each other in his podcast. Then you wrote your book, and I wanted to read it and give you a review for it. And then, of course, I went into my editor mode and made a few suggestions for you.
0: (laughs) And thank you. I appreciate that because I needed, I am not educated. I graduated high school, went to vocational school. Went to night College one quarter. That's all I did. So I am not a writer, but it has been a pleasure, all the people that have been placed in my path to help me. I think it's helped me not to get so ego-driven with this, that I have to depend on others in some aspects. So it helps me keep my ego in check. It comes out, don't get me wrong. But... <laughs> it's really helped me to see my powerlessness
1: it has it's it is just amazing how when we have a dream or a vision or an inspiration and even though our whispered lies which is one of my key concepts in my books that the negative thinking many people call it the committee that's so helpful right. to us you know, it whispers you can't do this what do you think you are and then the people and the resources just start pitching in like little love letters from our higher power that help us keep moving forward because it makes it easier. And it's always a group effort, just like
0: anything in life. That's valuable being of our maximum use, right?
1: Yep, exactly. That's why we're here.
0: Yes. So you want to tell us your story, a little bit of your story?
1: Yeah, I was a person who had trouble diagnosing myself as an alcoholic, because in high school, I drank a few times and got deathly ill. And also, even in college, it wasn't that often. But what made me vulnerable to want to numb my feelings was being the youngest in a family of four with an alcoholic father and My mother being depressed and worried about him constantly, and me being a highly sensitive person in this group of very outgoing, loud, (laughs) raucous family, and just feeling like an alien. So the way I coped with it was to create what some people call it the imposter self. I call it the fake ID or the invented self. I observed other people, and they seemed to be happy, so I did what they did. And so I constructed this fake ID that people seem to respond well to, getting good grades, getting the boyfriends, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time I got out of college, again, I'd only had one or two episodes. I didn't marry an alcoholic, but I did end up marrying a man who ultimately turned out to be gay. And his first name was Art. And then after that, I married another man on paper who worked for IBM, and he was quite a bit older than I was. And it was all these were fall in love immediately, because I was was addicted to romantic love. And I could keep that fantasy that was in the love songs and movies, I could keep that going by pretending for about three or four years. So then the second marriage lasted that long. It was a contract marriage, long story. But anyway, (laughs) and then... I had some living together arrangements, but none of those people drank or used drugs really until I got to grad school. This boyfriend said, you ought to, I was taking a master's degree and so on. And they said, you ought to go on. And I thought, i am always been good with school. So yeah, I'll do that. I don't know what else to do. I'm going through this divorce now. All right? So the latest boyfriend knew how to apply to grad school and so on. And lo and behold, I got into Stanford. Wow. And I got there and I, it was psychology of education. So it wasn't the clinical psychology. It was the psychology of teaching and learning. I had to take a statistics course the first, and I was like a Spanish literature major. (laughs) And then, (laughs) but I did, thank God, have some math aptitude. The point was that being with all those smart people and those hard courses and well-known professors, I was a bundle of anxiety because I had hung my whole identity on achieving, uh-huh. especially at academically. So i ditched the old boyfriend, found an alcoholic at a bar. <laughs> he grew his own marijuana. And the whole four years, I would get rid, finish my work at my little carol at stanford and then i'd go to the my cheers type bar where i was a regular i couldn't drink a whole lot because i'd get a horrible hangover and so on but i would go home then and smoke marijuana and that's how i coped with the stress because i had this perfectionism that i had to live up to in this very Mm. tough situation
0: (laughs) yes yeah Definitely an impostor, you felt like an imposter, correct exactly, yeah, and
1: I ultimately in a way the my coping strategy, which was drugs and basically sex, and I did a little competitive skiing in there too <laughs> worked. All I was right. able to get through the program and graduate by the end of it, however. I had acknowledged my very seedy lifestyle of living with this guy and getting high every night. And I was getting in my mid thirties and I thought, do I want to have children? And right. so on. So this guy comes in from Michigan, who's only two years older than I. And by the other by the way, the other two boyfriends I lived with, <laughs> their middle names were Arthur. <laughs> Oh, wow. You've got a
0: trend going here.
1: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the guy who showed up, who was only two years older than I was, came to a conference I was doing, participating in, and he was from Michigan. He didn't have Arthur in his name. He had a counseling background. He seemed like a really steady Eddie. (laughs) I thought, this is the one. Fell in love really fast, just like all the others. Moved to Michigan to finish my dissertation. And Here's what sent me to the psychologist. I didn't have any connections for marijuana or anything to numb myself. Hmm. And so he would travel, and I found myself within nine months of marrying my third husband, mind you. I went to bars and picked up strangers and went home with them and got marijuana. Uh And that's when I started scaring the hell out of myself. And lying telling stories and showing up at work hungover and probably with that awful hangover smell that I never even was aware of. (laughs) So after one of those last episodes where he wasn't out of town and I called him from a bar and said, I was with my students and we were going out and I didn't come home till two in the morning, but I wasn't with my students. I was with a couple of guys I'd picked up and we went and got drugs and blah, blah, blah. That's when I called the psychologist and said, What is wrong with this picture?
0: It's interesting how the paradox between the substitutes we use for the higher power have to keep increasing, keep elevating. They never stop. You always need more, 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 regardless of what you're talking about. And that contentment that we get when we surrender. It's amazing the difference in those things. And I don't need more and more for my higher power in that regard for me to feel the peace and joy that I'm looking for. It's just surrender. That's amazing. I never thought about that before. Thank you.
1: It's a good point because I would say that my rage over my lack of success with my fake ID, which I constructed to make me happy, yes, kept failing. Divorce number one, divorce number two, divorce number three, even grad school, all this stress and having to up the drugs and alcohol and the promiscuity, and then getting to Michigan with the third husband, and still, Mm. and it was a rage inside of me, really, that I took a long time to acknowledge because my formula was not working. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Did how long once you got into recovery did it take for that to leave? I'm just curious. I know you're going to talk about mm. those things. Maybe you just need to talk about it in your story. I don't know. I was just curious because I know it's a process. We don't what's the saying in AA that we didn't get this far into the woods overnight, so how can we expect to to get out of the woods overnight? We have to make this journey out as well.
1: Yes, I would say the quick the quick story about stopping drinking was that the therapist said you're in the early stages of alcoholism it's in your family try having two drinks no more no less. And I right. did that experiment for 6 months because with a high bottom cuz I didn't drink all the time. It was episodic. So sometimes when I did his experiments sometimes I'd have two drinks and stop. And other times I'd have two drinks and three drinks and four drinks and close down the bar and right. And I then after six months, I realized I cannot predict when I'm gonna do something crazy if I put one drink in my body. Mm. And the therapist had been suggesting I'd go to meetings. And it turned out my third husband, who was a counselor, knew about alcoholism and had been attending Al Anon. Wow. And at one moment of willingness, he said, what would happen if this were your last drink? And the next day he and I went to a meeting. He went to Al-Anon and I went to AA and I totally related. So in terms of the rage, that didn't come until later. I could relate to the desperation and the craziness and that there was a solution. But one thing I've learned about Recovery and therapy that I like to express to people listening is that I think we hesitate to go into therapy or recovery because we're afraid that there's this pit of ugliness down there, which in this sense was the rage and the desperation, and that we'd rip the band aid off and it would all come gushing out and overwhelm us. And we would ultimately realize, yes, I'm a horrible person and I'm also crazy. So what I learned in recovery was those aspects of me that needed healing only came out in layers. And I lay out each of those layers in Chapter 5 of 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. So it's once I said the third step prayer, my higher power was on board with regulating what I came to own when. And mm. only when I was ready to acknowledge the rage over growing up in such an alcoholic home and being programmed. And there were layers, first the alcoholism, then the adult children of alcoholic stuff. And there was another layer that didn't come up f- till five years later that was probably a big source of the rage, which was there'd been some sexual touching that I didn't know about. Yeah. It was therapy that helped me. Deal with the rage because I was afraid to deal with it alone.
0: Yeah, it's like peeling the onion, right? Yeah. It's like peeling the onion. And don't, th- for those that are new in recovery, don't get discouraged if you're not fixed overnight. <laughs> it takes time. Just keep coming back, keep doing what's suggested, and see if your life doesn't get better. What do they say? We'll gladly refund your misery. <laughs> yeah. Just keep at it. Thank you, G. Yeah. Okay, so you're in recovery. You you're, you're yeah. getting started. How does it how does that happen for you?
1: In 1986, first of all, 12 step was the only game in town. And so the meetings were quite different than they are now. Quite quite dominated with men, smoking, and my first meeting was with a group like that. And it was so funny because I totally related. That huh. was what was so weird. It was yeah. like, God. And I, I was relieved, really relieved mm. that there was a solution. And the next day I went to a women's meeting and I still am in touch with one of the women I met there. Huh. And because it's been 37 years. And, but I, here's the deal. I was a person who would have one foot in and one foot out, always an escape plan in the merit, everything. So I went to about two meetings a week. They said I should go to women's meetings. They said I should get a female sponsor. It took me six months to get a sponsor of going to meetings. I didn't drink during that time, which is quite amazing, but I was in therapy and the thing that ha- that I had to realize later was that I loved interacting with men. I had been able to use my body and so on to deal with men my whole life. I knew how to do that. It was the females I didn't know how to relate to because mm-hmm. I couldn't use any of those old tricks, and I in, and I wasn't cognizant of that. But I I was aware of how uncomfortable I was relating to women. And yet, their unconditional love, their honesty, their teaching me and loving me kept me coming back. And eventually, I did ask a woman to be my sponsor, and she said yes. But part of that fake ID thing was that I didn't think I, it's the base belief, I am not worthy of love, and so I was afraid to ask anyone to be there for me because I didn't think I was worthy of love because all the love I had gotten was through manipulating men.
0: <laughs> That's such a strong tool of fear is that, yes. that I'm unworthy.
1: Yes, it is. Yep, mm. it is. And I wonder if all of us have that concern at some level and... We try so many things to prove our worthiness, and they just don't work, and they don't work, and they don't work.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I have the same thing, Gigi. Even now, someone will congratulate me on the book or something, and I'll think, "If you really knew me, yes, you know that's what you're talking about." And I have to let those. I realize I'm not those thoughts, and I don't have to buy into that. And I, I said, "No, that's just a thought. I'll let that pass on through. That's not true. I don't believe that."
1: Yes. And that has been the keynote of most of my writing and teaching is that our negative thoughts are only that. And I'm not the only one to teach this. They are just thoughts and they don't have to drive our behavior or our emotions. And one of the first tools I learned in the program was that golden key thing from Emmett Fox. And it says, just notice the negative thought and think of God instead. Yes. And in my books, I don't use the word God that much because I want people to feel like they have an open avenue into that power. So I say, once I notice the negative thought, I say something like, God loves me, or I'm lovable, or my sponsor loves me, or all is well. or But then Our mind goes back to the negative thought. And then we have the responsibility to notice that and bring it back to the place where we can recondition our mind away from the negative and toward the positive and loving. That was like
0: the best thing I ever learned in my life. What tool helped you to realize that? For me, it was meditation. I don't know what it was. I remember the first time I was standing in front of the refrigerator and I had a thought that I was hungry. I needed to eat. And I went to the refrigerator and I said, wait a minute, that's just a thought. I I don't have to do what that thought said. And I just let that thought pass on and close the refrigerator. I remember that from early meditation. How did you come about that realization? I
1: remember I wanted to learn about meditation because I was always drawn to a big picture. By this time, I'm living very near Ann Arbor, Michigan. I had... After a year in therapy with my third husband, we divorced. And then after another year, I met Peter, who, after many years, <laughs> more than usual, right. became my fourth husband. And we just right. had our 32nd anniversary. Congratulations. So we, His
0: name's, name's was, not Arthur. His middle name's not <laughs> Arthur.
1: <laughs> Peter. <laughs> Peter. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And he's four years younger than I am.
0: <laughs> ah. well, congratulations. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. That's Thank good. Thank
1: you. But. My therapist was in, in those mid eighties, was into that book called Feeling Good by David Burns, which was very popular, which was cognitive behavioral therapy. Notice your thought and you don't have to believe it and you could change it. Huh. So that I never was, heard of that. Thank you. Yeah. And it but the big place where it hit me right between the eyes was when I decided to learn to meditate. And the reason I mentioned Ann Arbor, Michigan, is because it's a very open, inquiring, spiritual, out-of-the-box, seeking meaning community. And so I had been hearing about meditation from people in my AA groups and so on. So I got this book, and it asked me to start breathing and then ask myself, who was it that was watching my breathing? And that was the big aha. Like there's another aspect of me that's not what I'm thinking. That Mm. was really liberating. So a lot of my uh, tools, the 50 ways for worry less now, there are cognitive ones. There are a lot of spiritual ones, but they're also energetic ones because of the power of tapping and so many of those energetic tools Which I think all reprogram away from fear and toward love. Yes. And peace.
0: Yes. Because that's only our two only motivations, I think, is love or fear.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't think there's
0: anything else.
1: Yes. And you and I have connected over my main spiritual path, which is A Course in Miracles. And what's amazing about that when we talk about these perfect mosaic pieces falling together to lead us on just the right path for us right back in grad school, I'm still using my advisor, uh, that I worked for one day we're all having wine. And I asked her how was it that she was so peaceful during all these crazy things that went on in her work? It was educational research. And so She said she studied this thing called A Course in Miracles and that she had been she was near the place where the people were first reading the first manuscripts. And she had joined with some of those people. So she had the book. And so I didn't think anything of it. I didn't look into it. I get to Michigan after my crazy behavior. I don't think I asked her to send me this, but she sent me a simplified version of A Course in Miracles, a little red book called Love is Letting Go of Fear. Yes. By, by Jerry Jampolski. Yes. And driving back and forth from Dearborn to Ypsilanti in Michigan, I would listen, I got an audio tape of it and I would listen to those lessons. And I believe that opened me to receive the willingness to go to aA and then when I got my sponsor guess what her primary spiritual path was a course in miracles huh. and this is 1986 87 it wasn't that mainstream then
0: right it right hadn't
1: even been out for ten years and then I another friend and we started a, a course in miracles study group which as you said the main It's not the only place that teaches it, but it really educates us and gives us an experience of what it's like to either be in fear or to choose love. And then, of course, Marianne Williamson's book came out, Return to Love. And that became a bestseller in the 80s. And that's all about A Course in Miracles. And that went viral, so to speak, except we didn't have the viral then. Then I started going to Unity Church, which is not Unitarian, but a very recovery-friendly type of church that's all over the country and the world. And they were talking about A Course in Miracles. Right. So it's been a gift to me to have that. It's not my only spiritual path, but it's been the base.
0: Yes. It's interesting how we can see these different spiritual paths and start to recognize how they're similar.
1: Oh, for sure. I had tried to become a Christian right. two or three times. It just didn't take. I hadn't grown up with it, and I didn't want to admit I was basically sinful. And And I had uh, dabbled in some drumming things, mm-hmm. drumming right. circles and Native American. And we had some Buddhist meditation classes that I went to and so on. And what was so reassuring was it hit me, oh, this is all the same stuff, huh. you know, What Deepak Chopra calls universal truths. Right. From the wisdom traditions. He lumps them into the wisdom traditions. And that was just so reassuring to me. It was like this higher power thing. It doesn't matter what I call it or where I connect with it or
0: how it's real. (laughs) Yes. That's good. And it's, and it seems to be love based in every tradition that I've studied that it's virtue-based, not anger-resentment-based, not fear-based.
1: Yes. I think the Christian tradition of making virtue a thing we did rather than how we lived uh, got in the way. And when I was writing my books, I didn't want to read a couple of books that were being recommended to me again and again, and people were loving them. And one of them is Richard Rohr's book, Breathing Under Water, yes. where he takes the 12 steps and says how they create the experience that the early Christians were trying to focus on before it got turned into rules and dogma and formulas. Yes. It's beautifully written, really worth reading.
0: Yes, it is. I've actually I have the audio of that I listened.
1: Yeah, a, it's really that's a
0: good book. Really good. So you're moving on in recovery. How has your view of a higher power changed oh. during your recovery? I know mine keeps evolving and I've come to believe that if my higher power is not evolving, then I'm standing still rather than my old belief that I was told what to believe and conform to that belief, now it's as if I'm supposed to make love. If I make love my focus, helping others my focus in whatever I'm doing, have that intention, it seems that this, the higher power keeps changing as far as my thoughts of that. Has that been your experience?
1: Yeah, it's definitely something to remember in early recovery that you don't have to buy it. If right. people talk about God or whatever, you can make the group your higher power. You can, there's just something there that represents hope. And if you just follow the directions, you no know, one's trying to make you into any kind of spiritual path, but you need some force bigger than our fear. Yes. That's the key. And uh, so for me, I had tried to be a Christian. Then I got, I was very leery of getting into an AA group because I thought they were going to try to get my money. They were going to try to get me to take on leadership roles. They were going to coerce me. And I am a very coercion adverse person. Even when a computer program tries to manipulate me into something, there's a little spark of anger there. <laughs> so when I sat in the, in an AA group, and all they wanted, the primary purpose was to stay sober and help others stay sober. And they lived that. And they gave me hope and were glad to see me come back. Gradually, I started to believe that no matter what they called it, I didn't have to freak out about it. And also, about a year into recovery, these friends took me to the Unity Church. And that that guy was had 30-some years sober, their minister there. His name was Jack Boland, and he's passed away now. But he was the first person I heard speak from the pulpit where my bullshit detectors did not go off. It right. was like, oh, this feels like truth. Yes. And there was no focus on sin and punishment or guilt. It was love. It was right. and a so even though I was leery. I was open to something as long as I was able to fashion it myself, which I love that language as we come to believe the higher power, however we come to that, of our understanding, which really, you talked about the experience, and I think understanding really folds in the experience, because what convinced me was I was not drinking, I was not sleeping around, I had less stress at work because I had begun to tackle the perfectionism. I just started to have more peace of mind. I had connections with women that were authentic. There's no romantic tinge to them. It was real. And life then started to have a huge amount of relief in it because I was being unburdened. Right. As I did the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and started getting free. So what was that power that was helping me get free? I could not remove those, the perfectionism all by myself. I had a little help. I don't think our higher power makes bad things happen, but I think my stress at work and trying to live up to a professor position, assistant professor position. In the first year of sobriety, I injured my back. I had major surgery. In my second year of sobriety, I was lying down flat at AA meetings because I, my back, I couldn't sit for more than 10 minutes. So all this chronic pain. And I then sometimes had the excuse to not go on a business trip that I had scheduled that would have been way over committed. And not good for me. So my physical ailments helped soften me up because I couldn't control them. And I was left with either physical pain. So that's when somebody mentioned to me the Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron. And that was my second year of sobriety. And she wrote that beautiful book. When Everything Falls Apart, and it's Pema Chodron. So I read that, and for the first time, she, I got the idea. You know how how when you read something or you hear something, there's one big idea that knocks you between the eyes? (laughs) Yes. And her book said, sit with the pain in compassion, -compassion, self-compassion, and compassion for myself as a human being, Even though my essence is spiritual, I'm a human being having this experience, and my spiritual being could be with myself in loving comfort and patience. Mm. That was a revolutionary concept because I had been whipping myself into productivity my whole life and to rest in my weakness, Yes, in my disability. And, and your powerlessness my, really. Yes. And in my then that got me softened up. Then a few years later, I had two frozen shoulders where I couldn't lift my arm any higher than this, couldn't steer my car, had to give up my most of the sports I was engaged in. And that really again, I was disabled, but it was temporary. But it went on for two years. Chronic pain, uh, lots of surrendering. <laughs> So I think I might have been so used to emotional pain, which did help me get into the program, but it was the physical pain that kind of broke myself, I think. And it was a beautiful gift.
0: Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think that there's an orchestration of things going on, good or bad. I've come to believe that, Everything in my life works into something good. No matter what decision I make, it works into something good. Rain's gonna fall, right? On the yes. just and the unjust. <laughs> uh, but it's gonna but I'm taken care of.
1: Yes. I'm taken care and, of. And that is the ultimate spiritual belief. I am loved, I am lovable, I am loving, and that is the center of who I am. Which is why I wrote this Love More Now, the second book that just came out in February, because I think the best metaphor for love is an open heart. It's not closed down by bitterness, resentments, fears. And I would say that our whole spiritual path in recovery is a path of removing the blockages to love. Yes. Through the house cleaning, through our experiences, through being open to being taught through various traditions to open that heart. And that is a process. I still have a part of me, I'm an introvert. So when I run into my neighbors, I want to run the other way. And yet I've been, and I'm very giving and loving to lots of other people. So I'm trying to find a balance. I'm not I don't want to beat myself for that. On the other hand, I think God has me aware that I could be a little more loving in the moment, which I always said, I don't have time. I'm Hmm. rushing to do this. And that brings me to a question you asked earlier, which is, what am I currently doing? Yes. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Your post about subtraction. Yes. I just decided to put down the lash the lashing hmm. the drivenness god had me once i finished this third book and did the second book and did the launch it was like i'm not doing another damn thing i'm going <laughs> to i'm going to meditate more i'm going to play with my husband more i'm going to be outside more i'm going to ask myself how can i be of service in what ways god would have me and it seems like for now it's been rest. And yes. my mantra is I rest in love. I rest mm-hmm. in God. And the rest is okay. We don't have to know where we're headed. We don't have to judge if we're doing enough right now or next. We don't have to think about the to do list. We will get the nudges. So then things start flying in. I created the space. So then. Finally, Michael Singer's books had been recommended to me, The Untethered Soul, specifically. And when I was writing my books, I didn't want another author's voice in my head, so I had put off reading that. So I read that. I got into a new kind of meditation, guided meditation, which was breath work. It just showed up, and I thought, hey, I'll try it. And all kinds of new... A new group of women, just all kinds of other things have come in. And I have no idea what love would have me do in the future. And I don't need to because I'm resting in love. Right. And whatever is next will be obvious.
0: Oh, we stand on what's already moving, right?
1: Yes. That's what and, we do. Yeah. After a lifetime of striving, and I named the character defect because. I could feel that there was this, hell, no, I'm not going to obey that voice. There was a tinge of anger to it. What was it? Driven, ego-driven striving or fear-driven striving. Right. And that was what I did my seventh step with and my sixth step and my fourth and my fifth.
0: Just, just. Did, Isn't there a big book quote that says that we give up arriving for a lifetime of striving? Is that a big book quote? It's something in recovery. I remember.
1: Oh, neat! Yeah, I don't know it.
0: But uh, that's
1: it. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's it. All together. If it's not, it yeah. should be. So, yeah, that's a good yeah. one.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been writing about that in my blogs and newsletters. And the other thing I've been writing about is Jerry Jampolski's stripped-down version of A Course in Miracles, where all the God language is out. He was a medical doctor who worked with children with long-term illness and their families. And he created 12 basic principles, which to me are those universal truths. There is no lean now and so right. on. And he used those to create these programs. They're groups, just like 12-step, except they're called attitudinal healing. They're all over the world. And they're for... then he got into working with the AIDS population and that he has a training of attitudinal healing facilitators that I went to with my mentor, Jane, from grad school, the one who first mentioned ACI. Yeah, and uh, so anyway, I've been writing about that because if anyone's feeling like they just want a set of principles without all the complications, you know? Right. So I've been publishing those in my blog too, writing about that.
0: And where can they find your blog at?
1: What website? GGLanger.com.
0: Good. Good. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, Love is Letting Go of Fear is a book that I go through with sponsees.
1: Oh, really?
0: Yes. We read that together after we work the steps and the traditions. We go to reading books. And that's one book I've read with a couple of sponsees. We read several different books, but that's one of them that we, we just read what they want to. I said, here's some books I'd suggest. They said, well, I'd like to read this one. I said, okay, we'll read that. Oh, We're, how neat! Yeah, we've read everything from that to the short history of Chinese philosophy. We got halfway through <laughs> that and quit. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the short history was over four hundred pages, <clears throat> but we. I said, I don't think this is good enough for our time. He says, I don't think so either. Let's stop. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. So we'd move to something else. But yeah, that's great, Gigi. That's great.
1: I just wanted to underline how you are flexible in your sponsorship where we're guided by love, higher power to adjust to what our higher power nudges us to and the person themselves will say, this makes sense to me. And therefore I'm interested in learning more about it so that it's important to know that a sponsor There are some people who really need to be kicked in the ass. But my experience sponsoring women is that most of them want an open, loving, caring sponsorship that allows them to come, that helps guide them toward what's going to be spiritually meaningful to them at that stage in their recovery. So reading those books is really a cool idea. I like that.
0: And one thing I found, too, was it's not the sponsor that attracts the sponsee is the sponsee that draws in what they need oh so beautiful. the teacher shows up when the student's ready it's not it's not the other way around you would think my ego would say oh they're going to learn i'm here to teach them that's how my ego would like to take that but it's the opposite they're drawing out of me what they need Yes. If I'm open, like you're talking about. Yes.
1: An example of that is I just got a new sponsee. I had also one of the things that was while I was resting, I watched The Chosen TV series because I was looking for something that would rate it really high. And I knew it was about Jesus, but I didn't let that stop me. And it. Was so profound and entertaining and wonderful. So, this new sponsee I get after watching it is a very strong, loving Christian. And I had been a little skeptical or distant from a more strict Christian conception of Jesus. And here I watched that show. And then, who comes into my life but this sponsee who actually so far is ministering to me.
0: They say that when there's three phases, when the teacher's ready, the student appears, when the student's ready, the teacher appears, when the student's ready, the student appears. And that's what you're talking about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yes. Oh, and something else I realized I've had to preface when I talk about the Tao that, especially here in the South, Because people get closed off. They're thinking I'm telling them a new religion of some kind. Right. I was even asked to write the Ford in a Ford to a book where a guy wanted a Taoist take on something. I said, wait a minute, I'm not Taoist. I'm still, if being a Christian means being Christ like, I'm still a Christian Mm -hmm. by all means, more so than I ever have been. Yes. I learned that everyone has their God language and it's like we from different parts of the world we speak different languages none of those langu- languages are right or wrong or better or worse they're just their native tongue so we all have that god language so for a long time i couldn't say the lord's prayer and at the end of a meeting because i really didn't believe god was up in the air anymore and all of those things and when i realized we all had our same language i could meet in a common language that wasn't my native tongue and yes. and say and and give give gratitude, even though that's not a way that would reflect my walk at the mall, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, it does. It does. It's it's really openness. Yes. And quitting the debating society. Yes. And being willing to have this power work for us. Because it's working for everybody else, and however we name it, it's a real power. It's right there in front of us and in us.
0: <laughs> yes, that's good.
1: I subscribe to your daily little email, and I love this one, which is from your book, Powerless But Not Helpless. The question question to ask may be, what can I lose today? <laughs> And a big concept in Course in Miracles is the undoing of old beliefs, the undoing of the fears. And I would say that this last, let's see, March, April, May, it's only been three or four months that I've been resting in God, has been losing, being relieved of, releasing what has ceased to serve me. It did serve me while I was writing the book. I needed that motivation. And then I was able to lose at least the ego edge of it and then really settle into, I want it to be spiritual motivation for what I do. Nothing else.
0: That love motivation. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We never stop learning, do we? No. Never stop growing. No. Never stop surrendering, I guess, is another way to say it.
1: Yeah. And we shed things and lose them like this quote, but we gain this huge space in our hearts and our minds to love more. Every subtraction, everything we lose that used to be a survival
0: strategy or whatever, creates this beautiful space. That's the culmination of the third step, isn't it? we decided to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand it. And that's really doing what we decided to do in the third step. We're turning over our cares, all the things that we're concerned about. That's what you're talking about.
1: Yes. And the middle part, which is my favorite part, relieve me of the bondage of self. That's the subtraction. That's the losing. And why do I want to be relieved? At first, I thought it was so I could feel better, <laughs> but now <laughs> read the rest of it, that I may better do thy will. Yes. I love this conversation, buddy. I've learned a lot, actually.
0: <laughs> Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Anything you want to, what would you tell a newcomer that's maybe stumbled upon this podcast? They're trying, they've heard they have to believe in God and they're trying, they're fighting all of that and they don't know what to do, really, but they need to get sober, and they see their life is a mess. How do they, what would you, from your experience, what would you tell them?
1: Just try something, and it's not another romantic attraction. Right. Try a therapist. Try Going to because I think they tune into you. They see the Tao, so they must have some affinity for um, something Buddhist or something Eastern. You know, maybe right, don't even right. understand it, but it's not that what we label as the God stuff. There is Refuge Recovery that has online twelve-step meetings angled toward Buddhism. I right. think yes. I've been to some of the meetings. They're great. So try something. And then if you're doing only Zoom, do try to send a chat to somebody in the group that you feel an affinity toward and give them your email or text and start creating a relationship with somebody in recovery who's farther down the path than you.
0: Yes. And just
1: be open.
0: Yeah. Preferably the same gender.
1: No romantic.
0: No. No. Attraction. Yep. Ah, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Anything else you want to add, Gigi, before we close? I, I think
1: just remember that the only thing that's real about us is this center of loving energy. That's our true self. That is all goodness. And if you think what's in the center of you is all badness, that's not true. You yes. This spiritual path this awakening, this growth is into being a loving, beautiful person that you've always been and nothing can ruin that.
0: Hmm.
1: Nothing can ruin it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much for being with us today. I'm sure we'll get some good responses from the podcast and I've enjoyed catching up too. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And um, why don't you put in there that, my email, you have it okay. on the show notes, because I'm happy to send my first book, which is, I have a bunch of copies that I'm happy to give away. Oh, okay. If people email me and ask, I would be happy to share that with them. Um, the other one is only available on Amazon. Love more now.
0: but And, and anyway. I'll put a link for that. We have a bookstore on buddyc.org. It's oh, under resources. So I will Great. add your, both books to the bookstore and then your email in the show notes as well as your website.
1: Great. Yes. And of course, we're always happy to talk to people who yes. might have said, hey, I'd like to talk to this person. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do with this open time.
0: Who knows? <laughs> but if we're open, we'll be guided in the right direction. All we have that's to do true. is be open. We don't have to make it happen anymore. Yes. Such a relief. Ah. Uh. <laughs> I was never designed to do that, and I thought that was my only job, you know? Yep. Thank you so much, Gigi. You have a great day.
1: Thank you, buddy. Take care.
0: Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use, and have a great week. (laughs)